I had never seen a clause like this, and it basically stipulated that the Wuhan Institute of Virology could demand that the Galveston National Laboratory delete files, pathogens, materials, and they would have to comply. Inside a U.S. taxpayer-funded lab's ties to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There is really no distinction between civilian use science and military technologies to further the aims and objectives of the People's Liberation Army. Today I sit down with National Pulse investigative reporter Natalie Winters to discuss Chinese Communist Party influence in America, from TikTok to compromised fact-checkers to serious conflicts of interest among the individuals that shaped America's COVID policy. Even since COVID-19, millions of dollars have continued to pour out of this country taxpayer funds to Chinese Communist Party-run labs and to fund research in China when we know there's no transparency going on there. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Natalie Winters, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So it's high time, actually, to have you here. Um, you know, I've been, of course, following your work for some time. So first of all, you know, congratulations on doing really good research. Uh, and there's this one piece that basically came to my attention. Uh, your headline is, Revealed Fauci's Texas lab signed a confidential deal with Wuhan colleagues enabling, quote, destroying secret files and materials. Now, this is a story uh, that was actually done by a different organization than yours, but it's actually done based on relationships that you uncovered a while back. So tell me about this. Sure, well, thank you so much for having me. And there's so much to really uncover when it comes to the, the relationships between the United States and our agencies like the National Institutes of Health and a lot of these Chinese Communist Party-run scientific organizations. And at face value, it sounds a little scary, the, the idea that you know U.S. taxpayer dollars would be being sent overseas to fund research in countries very, very far away, little oversight on what exactly they're doing. Um, but when you really get your hands on the documents that detail the type of research going on, uh, the confidentiality arrangements and agreements, it's almost, I think, more baffling in terms of how did we get here. And this story that you just mentioned is really a perfect example of that. So about a year ago at the National Pulse, we first reported out that the Galveston National Laboratory, uh, which is a project that's entirely funded by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infection, Infectious diseases, that is the agency led by Anthony Fauci, um, was engaged since at least 2017 in a memorandum of understanding to boost cooperation, whether it be on research and pathogens or even personnel exchange um, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So flash forward about a year after breaking that story, um, another organization actually obtained a hard copy of that contract all the way back from 2017, um, detailing specifically the confidentiality the confidentiality aspects of that arrangement. Um, and what was so, I think, enraging, and just really as someone who has seen a lot of interesting arrangements when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party and American scientific organizations, I had never seen a clause like this. And it basically stipulated um, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology could demand that the Galveston National Laboratory, again, a taxpayer-funded US-based lab, um, would have to delete files, pathogens, materials, these are some direct quotes from the actual contract, at the request 
of Wuhan. They were not allowed to make any backups of any of the data contained, um, and they would have to comply. So I think this is just a perfect example um, of just a, a lack of understanding um, coming from the National Institutes of Health, who are signing and entering into these agreements with Chinese and Chinese Communist Party-linked uh, scientific organizations, um, and just giving them essentially a free-for-all and allowing them to dictate what's going on at American laboratories. Well, okay, so let's backtrack a little bit, okay? Let's talk a little bit about the general things that you've uncover uncovered over the last couple of years around the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? And, and, and a little bit more also on, you know, why these relationships are actually as problematic as you're, you're describing here. Sure. So I think when people hear the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, their initial probably knee-jerk reaction is to think of COVID-19, maybe Batwoman, Shenzhen Li, and the coronavirus research that was going on there. But that's really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is a lab that has direct ties to the People's Liberation Army, um, not just through its leadership, but even through its sort of rank-and-file researchers. And what's so interesting about that is that a lot of the researchers that they used to list on their website, uh, both the Chinese language version and the English language version, you could see that the research institutions that they were affiliated with. And nine times out of ten, you could see it was a military-linked entity. Oftentimes, military was, was in the institution's name. Um, but flash forward, after COVID-19 and after scrutiny was really, I think, increased in terms of looking at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they started deleting these researchers' names from their websites. Um, also, in terms of the research that they were doing, specifically when it came to the bat coronavirus research, and manipulating um, certain strains of coronaviruses, they also deleted those web pages. So I think a lot of times you can kind of see, you know, the crime or at least what went wrong in the cover up in the web pages that they're choosing to delete. But I think what Amer a lot of Americans fail to understand and comprehend about the Wuhan Institute of Virology is that this is not just, you know, a scientific lab, a scientific organization that's based in China. This is a lab that is ran and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. We've unearthed several, whether it be documents, web pages, you know, press releases from the lab itself documenting how they have basically, you know, Chinese Communist Party devotion sessions on lab ground. Um, they've pledged to implement the Chinese Communist Party's agenda and, go and goals, quote, without compromise. That's a direct quote from, a, I think, a press release not too long ago. You see them taking researchers on field trips um, to, to sites that are dedicated to Mao Zedong. It's, it's really, I think, hard for sometimes Americans to understand how under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is. You know, this lab has a Communist Youth League affiliated with it. A lot of its researchers have received awards from the Chinese Communist Party. So it's easy to just focus on the Wuhan Institute of Virology as the source of COVID-19 potentially or its links to bat coronavirus research. But I think it's indicative of a larger problem in terms of the science or the China-based science that the United States decides to fund um, because oftentimes, frankly, every time, uh, there is really no distinction between, you know, civilian use science and science for the sake of learning and understanding the world and military technologies, you know, whether that's bioweapons or, or just any sort of scientific advancement that at the end of the day works to further the, the aims and objectives of the People's Liberation Army. Well, okay, so why don't I ask this, you know, uh, natural origin or lab leak, where do you stand? Of course, I, I know, but, but let's, let's use that as a starting point. Sure. Well, I'm definitely a supporter of the lab leak theory, um, and I think 
at least my best way to, to evidence that. You know, I still think it's hard because a lot of the evidence has been destroyed. Obviously, there's been a massive, massive campaign from mainstream media outlets in tandem with the Chinese Communist Party to kind of quash any discussion or debate over this. But in terms of the evidence that I've seen, and, and some of the strongest evidence that I've seen of that, is the web pages that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is deleting, specifically when it came to the bat coronavirus research that they were doing. One story in particular, um, which mentions the National Institutes of Health as a partner on this form of research, um, they talked about how they were manipulating bat coronavirus strains that they had found in the wild, um, and they were sort of playing with the lethality, the virulence of the pathogens and the viruses to reach, quote, epidemic strains. Now, that's certainly an interesting word when you look at the world we're living in today, um, but I think in, just in terms of the cover-up that you've seen from the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's deleting certain sequences of genomes and viruses, or just how intensely they've tried to quash any discussion or debate about COVID-19 and its true origins, I think that, to me, is the tell. You know, I wish I could sit here and say, well, in my opinion, sequence, you know, and rattle off a long list of numbers is, is you know, the, the progenitor to, to COVID-19. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of that evidence has, has been erased and destroyed. So I think we're kind of left trying to, to put the pieces together. And unfortunately, the organizations that we should have been able to, to entrust with getting to the bottom of COVID-19, whether that was the World Health Organization or even the National Institutes of Health and a lot of these researchers who had been kind of on the receiving end of a lot of taxpayer grants, these were some of the leading voices that were just taking the Chinese Communist Party's line uncritically on where COVID-19 came from. You know, they went to the lab and just asked some researchers, so did it come from your lab? And when they said no, they were totally okay with taking them at their word. And I think there's probably no better example of just the absolute absurdity that has kind of, I think, at least dumbfounded me in terms of the, the hunt for the true origins of COVID-19 than when you get some of the you know, big tech social media platforms, their primary fact-checking outlets that they use to censor a lot of stories, oftentimes critical of the Chinese Communist Party, well, the voices that they were citing were researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So as someone who has watched a lot of, I think, media hoaxes and fake news be perpetrated, not just on the American people, but really the entire world, I think COVID-19 bears a lot of those hallmark signs in terms of the disinformation and, and really misinformation and just a calculated effort behind it to really suppress and obscure the true origins of COVID-19. And I think it probably goes back to a lot of, I think the, the outlook that a lot of people have when it comes to censorship of certain ideas. You know, if these ideas had no merit, if they were so bogus, so ridiculous, why would you have to work so hard to suppress them? You know, to your point, uh, the documentary that we did back in April of 2020 about the origins or, you know, we were, we didn't say this is what happened. We said, you know, kind of like what you, what the sorts of things you were saying. The, the evidence suggests that a lab leak is a very real possibility, right? And that, you know, the documentary got something like 100 million views across all these different bottles on Facebook. A fact check popped up. And, you know, and Cheryl Atkinson actually discovered that this, the person who was doing the fact check, she noticed, was actually someone who was affiliated with, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, which was just, I'm, I mean, comically preposterous, but also terrible because there was this suppression of something, of very important information, which, you know, a year later turned out to be, well, 
much more plausible than was suggested. Well, and it's really interesting too, I think social media fact checkers really are, I think, kind of the next front in terms of the information warfare that we see going on right now in this country and, frankly, the entire world. Social media obviously transcends borders, right? Basically, everyone's on some form of social media. Um, but a lot of these fact checkers have, you know, conflicts of interest, too. And, you know, there's one in particular, a group called Lead Stories, and one of their financial backers, you can see on their website, they receive funding from TikTok. And it's really interesting, TikTok, which is of course a Chinese Communist Party, I would say owned, some might say linked company, you know, whether you look at who founded it to where it receives its funding. Um, and I think that that's just one of those, you know, it's just, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to articulate because it's sort of a, an, an ineffable in some ways conflict and, and weave, weaved, woven conflict of interest where you have so many moving parts from the financing of certain entities who are then running cover for the same foreign governments that are kind of supporting these companies which are then in turn funding them. And I just think it's, it's, it's really interesting and it's a really underreported story just how a lot of these voices that you see pretending to be neutral arbiters of fact and that goes all the way up to the World Health Organization and some of their COVID-19 investigators, um, people who pretend to be unbiased, which I'm sure is a common phenomenon. You know, anyone who watches mainstream media outlets, you know, people pretend to not have any, you know, biases against a certain party or a certain position, um, when in reality we know they do. Um, but I think fact checkers are, are, I think, probably the most kind of nefarious angle of that or aspect of that because people assume they're fact checkers, right? They should know what they're doing. Oh no, they took down the story sharing it, they flagged it as disinformation, misinformation, and you know, my account got suspended. Um, but when you really dig into a lot of these groups, you see heavy, heavy partisanship. And like I said, even funding from TikTok, and no company that's receiving funding from TikTok could be a neutral arbiter uh, in terms of the origins of COVID-19, right? An American-based company that's receiving funds from TikTok knows most likely if they come out in support of the lab leak theory, uh, that TikTok check is probably not going to clear. Um, so I, I think people, you know, really need to understand that these fact checkers are are not fact checkers. Um, that's not even a euphemism. They're, they're the antithesis of fact checkers. They're narrative enforcers. And I think the, the most prime example that we saw of that was throughout the origins of COVID-19 and the sort of evidence that they were using to suppress a lot of these stories. And I think, again, to go back to your question about you know, am I a lab leak person or do I think it developed naturally? Um, the fact that they're not even necessarily censoring people who are just saying, I believe it's a lab leak, but people who are saying, what if it were a lab leak? Mm -hmm. Let's just get to the bottom of it. That shows you how, how intense the campaign was to really quash any appetite to get to the bottom of COVID-19. And I think that just shows you, again, the narrative enforcement that was kind of behind this push to really obscure any actual investigation into where COVID-19 came from, which seems to be a very valid and, and relevant question given the, you know, I think damage that that virus, that that pandemic has caused and continue to causes. The, the thing with the lab leak theory, it's just like there's a sort of element of also like basic logic, right? There's an institute that's doing the exact research that would create by the world's foremost expert on that specific type of virus. You know, you can I, you can take this you know argument further. There's this just kind of we're we're often asked to kind of ignore the basic knowledge and focus on the facts, but the but the the, the basic logic is actually important in trying to figure these things out, right? 
I mean, this is actually what you, you, I get the sense from your work that you use this type of skill to do, to figure out where to put your focus, your targets, right? Well, yeah, I think when you don't have conflicts of interest, when you're not, you know, funded by TikTok or, you know, any Chinese Communist Party linked entity or foreign country, it allows us to actually look independently at the situation, see reality for what it is, and base our reporting off of that as opposed to some misconstrued version of reality, you know, taking the Chinese Communist Party's line on where COVID-19 came from and then trying to run with that and trying to find facts that fit the case. But, you know, Shijong Lee, the the Wuhan Institute of Virology's bat lady, you know, she was was doing not just a lot of research when it came to bat coronaviruses, but it it was it was more than that. It was specifically bat coronaviruses and their ability to infect humans and toying around with that. And that was the variable, right? How it would infect humans, how many people it could kill, how easily it could spread. The variable wasn't, you know, the virus or what type of bat. It was specifically this type of at least gain of function inspired, some might say it was gain of function, some might say otherwise, but gain of function, you know, manipulation of pathogens to make it more deadly to humans. And and we had uncovered um, old kind of annual reports from the Wuhan Institute of Virology documenting Sher hmm. Zheng Li's work all the way back even starting in 2012. And she was trying to find back coronavirus strains that were capable of, quote, direct human infection. Um, so it just kind of makes you, you know, sit back, even taking the politics out of it, taking the fact that it's a Chinese Communist Party controlled lab, taking away the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has always strategically used science as kind of a tool, as an arrow in the quiver to kind of try to take over the West. If you take even all that out of it, you see someone who's been working on bat coronaviruses to infect humans to, you know, maximum capability. And then all of a sudden, less than a mile down the road from that lab, which has repeatedly said on record, their deputy director has said, you know, we don't have good biosafety regulation here. It makes you wonder, you know, hmm, it's probably more likely that a pathogen escaped either intentionally or by accident um, than a wet market where they weren't even selling, you know, these alleged pangolins or bats or whatever animal uh, that the Chinese Communist Party wants us to believe it was. Well, you know, I, I was joking the other day with someone. There's a recent paper, I don't know if you've seen, about the fact that the virus was likely passed through tree shrews, right? And so, you know, the, my joke was that they're going to discover that, there, of course, there were tree shrews in the wet market soon when it's actually just a very common lab animal, right? Well, well, totally. And I think this wet market theory is is really, again, another perfect example of of disinformation, but I, I think it's it's really interesting, you know, to not just sit and be up in arms, oh, this wet market theory, it's so preposterous, but to understand kind of how the laundering of information works, right? Like the Chinese Communist Party comes up with this theory, the wet market. I saw at least first kind of coming out a lot of these Chinese state-run media outlets, and then they were citing evidence, you know, different studies to kind of back it up. But again, a study from a Chinese Communist Party-run scientific organization to support the Chinese Communist Party's official line on an issue, not really much evidence going on there, more just finding facts to support a faulty narrative. Um, But then the mainstream media outlets in the West totally picked up that narrative uncritically and shared it. I remember, uh, I think it was CBS, uh, was praising China's response to COVID-19 in the early days and uncritically just stating that COVID-19 came from a wet market. And even if, say, you know, 10 years from now we find out that that's the case, which I highly, am highly, highly suspect that that would be the case, um, 
You know, the fact that these mainstream media outlets just ran with the line of the Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, unwaveringly at that, and actually dismissed people who were criticizing them for doing so as conspiracy theorists, I think really should make us wonder, you know, what exactly, where exactly do the allegiances of the mainstream media lie? Because it doesn't seem to be with truth or reality. Um, it seems to be with, you know, whatever the, the narrative the Chinese Communist Party is supporting at that time on whatever the most, you know, relevant issue is. You know, uh, this issue specifically of Western corporate media unquestionably following Chinese Communist Party narratives, that's actually not a new thing, right? I mean, that's actually one of the reasons I started working for the Epoch Times. Was it seven? I think it's like 17 years ago or something like that. It was, was precisely this issue. And it was just stunning to me always, right? Because how could you? And so, so I want to take a little diversion. You mentioned TikTok. So why don't we, and I don't talk about TikTok enough. I'm always shocked at how prevalent TikTok is. It's one of the most downloaded apps. It has a profound ability based on other research that I've seen, research I've seen from other, from people like Dr. Robert Epstein, for example, is the profound ability to influence Americans and all the people that are using it, right? So what, tell me what you know factually about TikTok and why you see it so obviously as being such a concern. Sure, so I think that there are two aspects or like two takes on TikTok. I think the more mainstream one is that it is, you know, a Chinese Communist Party owned platform for the purposes of data harvesting, whether it's biometric data. I think they just announced in a recent app app update that they would be scanning users' faces and seeing how they react, um, taking their thumbprints, and of course, obviously concerns about it being a backdoor um, for ByteDance, the parent company, to get into the rest of people's phone and steal other data. I know some independent research has confirmed those, those concerns. Um, so that's obviously one part of it. And that, of course, I think is a problem that goes all the way to the top of the company. Um, its former CEO in 20, I believe it was in 2018, had actually written sort of an apology letter. One of his apps, another app, um, had been taken off the Chinese app store because regulators and authorities thought it, it was allowing for lack of a better term, too much free speech was going on, um, too much criticism of, of the Chinese Communist Party, so they deleted the app. Um, and in response, you know, fearing that he would maybe face a similar fate as Jack Ma or some of these these other types who've you know been basically kind of unpersoned by the Chinese Communist Party, um, he issued an apology and said that going forward in all of his endeavors. Um, he would essentially support the Chinese Communist Party and use his platforms, his companies, uh, to, I believe it was, quote, promote socialist core values. Um, that was, of course, before TikTok was ever birthed, or at least the American version of TikTok. Um, so therefore, it would fall under that kind of criteria in terms of what this man was doing with a lot of the platforms that he created. Um, so I think when you kind of understand TikTok through that lens and you see it as a tool to expand socialist influence, but specifically Chinese Communist Party influence, I think a lot of the, the technological concerns that I was just speaking about kind of corroborate those fears. And I think one way you see that manifest is the censorship that goes on on the app in terms of stories and videos that are critical of the Chinese Communist Party, so whether it's about Tiananmen Square, I remember that uh, there was a story about a lot of videos about, you know, at least supporting that, uh, were, were getting taken off the platform. Um, but what I think is, is more interesting and not 
talked about enough when it comes to TikTok. And again, this is one of these issues where, you know, is there hard data evidence to necessarily support this? But this is just my personal take on it. But I think the issue with TikTok, uh, beyond it being a, a massive kind of time suck and just waste of, of time and life and energy for a lot of these young children, is a lot of the content on there. I think there's accounts like Libs of TikTok, you know, that have exposed it recently. And I remember reading a report, um, I believe it was from actually Teen Vogue, um, talking about articles kids writing, you know, TikTok turned me gay, TikTok turned me bisexual, TikTok made me start looking at all these just sort of untraditional routes of, of living. Um, and I think that that to me is sort of the more concerning aspect of TikTok is how it undermines and sort of plays with American domestic politics, even when you take China out of the equation. And there are also a lot of reports, um, and I saw the videos for myself, not, not as an app user, but, but secondhand, um, talking about how people were using TikTok, TikTok to help illegal immigrants actually cross the border, um, the southern border at Mexico, um, illegally, obviously, how to kind of circumvent border patrol agents, and then even people at least saying, purporting to be lawyers, um, giving legal advice on how to avoid deportation if you were undocumented and didn't have your papers. So, you know, obviously Chinese Communist Party political warfare in the United States transcends just beyond trying to dictate narratives about China hmm. in the West, right? It's trying to dictate narratives about every issue. And I think you see TikTok as one of those platforms um, that sort of is, is used to kind of play with the cultural and social issues going on in this country. I mean, it's, I mean, and it's totally reshaped the economy, the way the world works. I mean, all these companies are pouring billions of dollars to, you know, use marketing on TikTok. Uh, it's totally reshaped, I think, kind of the world. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate that we've given this platform, uh, you know, designed by the Chinese Communist Party such influence in this country and, ab and abroad. But unfortunately, they have a, a very, very, very well-staffed lobbying team here in Washington, D.C., um, you know, former staffers for very high-level officials. Um, all the way up to the Speaker of the House um, are people who now work on behalf of TikTok as lobbyists. So I think that's kind of an, another example in a lot of the issues when it comes to, you know, when you look at the policy, the outputs that come out of Washington, D.C., you're left scratching your head. Um, you know, even when you get to taxpayer dollars being sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, I think it's because a lot of times the policies that we see coming out are not meant to actually protect Americans, whether it's, you know, children, young, impressionable minds on an app, or even, you know, Americans who, you know, don't want to be exposed to COVID-19 um, or, you know, that pandemic or that virus that never should have been created in the first place. Um, but unfortunately, when you get lobbyists in the mix and just these conflicts of interest and, you know, a decades long as you were mentioning um, campaign on, be, on the hands of the Chinese Communist Party to influence the United States politics both domestically and internally how it exerts its influence, of course you're going to end up with crazy policies like allowing TikTok to you know, exist in the United States and sending taxpayer dollars to fund research over in Wuhan um, you know, when putting, make sure you have contract clauses that allow you to delete pathogens and can't make any backups. You mentioned something I want to touch on. You said the app was designed by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, a lot of people would say, "Well, no, this is a you know, this is a separate. It's its own company. Yes, you know, maybe the CCP can have some influence." But why would you say that? I mean, this is also a broader kind of question about how large Chinese companies operate within China. 
Well, I've always viewed any Chinese company, uh, if, even if it's not necessarily a state-owned enterprise, as basically a dormant state-owned enterprise, because Chinese law, I believe it's Article 7 of their national intelligence law, allows any company that's based in China, a Chinese company, to effectively be requisitioned by the state to serve, they say, they euphemize it as, you know, intelligence purposes um, for the safety of the country, um, but allowing any, any of these companies, the data they've collected, um, any of the work they're doing to be used for the ends of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think this fantasy that Chinese companies can exist and not be under the control of the Chinese Communist Party is just that, a fantasy. Um, but even more precisely, or, or even if you take the, the legality out of it, um, you, you look, you know, you, even though it's, it's law, you can't, um, but if, if you look aside on that, that issue, um, I think, you know, like, for instance, the case of, of Jack Ma, you know, a lot of these people who run these companies, right, based in China, they know that they need to fall in line. They need to not, you know, speak out against the Chinese Communist Party, not be too critical, or it's not going to end well for them. I think we've seen a lot of regulation of big tech companies over there in terms of at least the ones listed on the stock market. Um, and and I just think this this narrative, and I think that's something, too, that a lot of Americans don't understand. You know, oh, it's a Chinese company. It's just based in China. It's not necessarily part of, you know, a branch of the Chinese Communist Party. And while that might be true temporarily, um, all it takes is one second that switch to be flipped on in this company that used to be, you know, sure, just, you know, based in China is now effectively a, a de facto state-owned enterprise. Um, and I, I don't think many people understand that and also too I think when you understand the way the Chinese Communist Party operates you know they use everything at their disposal and if they see a company like TikTok that has the reach it does um, into you know kids as young as nine and ten even though they shouldn't be on the platform they're still on there um, they're going to use that to their advantage you know if the Chinese Communist Party is, is toying around with bat coronaviruses to make them more deadly I'm pretty sure if they see an app like TikTok uh, just waiting to be requisitioned by them to fill the heads of everyone across the world, but especially young impressionable minds in America with, you know, a curated version of China or a certain take on an issue, um, they're definitely going to weaponize that. You know, and it, just uh, something I want to kind of remind viewers of is that the People's Liberation Army, which of course, you know, you were, you made the case earlier about how connected it is with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, is actually the army of the Communist Party, not of China, and that's just an interesting distinction, I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, I think that that distinction is always important to make um, because I think a lot of times the mainstream media, um, certain voices love to, love to critique criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese system as, you know, racist, right? You're attacking the Chinese people, but it's like nothing could be further from the truth. The people who suffer the most at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party are the Chinese people. So I think that that distinction is always, always very, very, very important to make. And I think it's, it's very interesting, too, that mainstream media outlets never really pay attention to that nuance, right? The way they describe China is basically the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that, that's the only kind of group that they ever engage with and take the line of. Um, you know, for instance, with what's going on in Shanghai right now, there's not a lot of reporting on that, at least truthfully, from the mainstream media in terms of the, the chaos that's going on there, what people are being forced to endure. And I think it's interesting because you see the mainstream media so quickly rushing to take the Chinese Communist Party's side on most issues, especially the origins of COVID. 
19, uh, yet the Chinese people, who of course lack a free and f fair press, right? You know, China Daily, China Global Television Network is probably never going to report truthfully on any of these issues. So I think the Western media has a very, very special role to play in terms of helping the Chinese people kind of overtake the Chinese Communist Party and actually get the truth out because China lacks an actual free press, right? So I think that that's what's even more, I think, disheartening and just on a, you know, emotional human level, so saddening about what has become of mainstream media outlets um, because, you know, the Chinese people need them, need the truth, need actual information, need people to be sharing the horror stories of what's going on in Shanghai right now and across the entire country. Um, but the mainstream media, you know, seems to be okay with it. They'll take the Chinese Communist Party's line, uh, they'll ignore the Chinese people, yet accuse, you know, people like me who say, you know, the Wuhan coronavirus or, or link COVID-19 uh, to China, more precisely the Chinese Communist Party is racist, which in my mind is really just crazy. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of discourse be kind of degraded into ad hominem attacks, right? You know, racist, sexist, homophobe or whatever. Um, but I think it's interesting when you see the mainstream media taking that, I think, very just basic, simple line of attack on the issues to people who want to actually get to the bottom of what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, and they just dismiss, you know, those people as racist or some other silly word that obviously has no merit. You know, uh, to your point, you've done a whole bunch of work around, you know, just sort of looking at kind of connections between the CCP and different media. I saw you had a headline about a lot of like pretty high-profile CNN people going to work for CGTN. I don't want to necessarily dig into that, but on, the, on another element, you know, you have Google that was, you know, funding uh, EcoHealth at, at some levels as well. And then you, a recent headline you have is Google funding a leading lab leak denier, right? To, to kind of go back to our initial topic here. Um, so tell me about this. Sure. So this, again, is, I think, another perfect example of just a conflict of interest. So um, an individual named Charles Kalisher, he was the actually the first signatory on the Lancet letter. Um, this came from the Lancet Medical Journal back in February of 2020. And this was a, a, a statement, I think it was about two pages, basically dismissed, you know, even if you dared to say the word lab leak, you were a conspiracy theorist. And I just want to jump in here, you know, has this been letter been retracted or anything? I, have, I haven't actually, I, I haven't followed that, but it was, I remember when I saw this, you know, having a background in evolutionary biology and genetics, I thought this is just a preposterous thing. How could Lancet possibly publish something like this? Because the suggestion was like, there's no way that this isn't natural. I mean, essentially it was the letter, right? Which was a preposterous thing to say with, you know, with the evidence that was available at the time. And you, at least you, you need to look at this, right? Yeah, so much yeah. for the scientific method, yeah. um, you know, but they threw that out the window and wrote this paper basically saying uh, anyone who even dares to utter the, the words lab leak um, or conspiracy theorists, and I think they even used the word conclude, which is a pretty strong word, um, saying that COVID-19 developed naturally. Um, so since its publication in February 2020, um, they the, the, issue, so the issue about this statement was that a lot of the authors on it, um, I think it was about 
around three dozen, a lot of these scientists, they all said unanimously, we have no conflicts of interest. Um, and one of the, the other leading signatories, which Freedom of Information Act requests had actually, actually showed emails that this individual, Peter Doshak, was the leading orchestrator of this statement. Well, he had been a longtime collaborator, that's a direct quote using the words of Shi Zheng Li um, of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Finally, I would like to thank all the collaborators, particularly my long-term collaborator from Lin Fa Wang, Peter Dazak, and Ralph Barrick. This is someone who has worked with Wuhan for a very long time. We had unearthed clips of him speaking actually in Washington, D.C., I think back in 2016, um, talking about how he was working on, quote, killer viruses with his colleagues in Wuhan. Um, so this is someone who is, you know, knee-deep in Wuhan Institute of Virology Compromise, yet he said, I have no conflicts of interest, which was just a absolutely preposterous uh, statement to make. So we had been reporting on that for a while, um, Peter Doshak's ties to Wuhan and ties to the Chinese Communist Party more broadly. Um, but I would say about maybe a little over a year after the statement's publication, um, what they did issue, now we would say it was basically a retraction, um, but technically, I guess, you know, legally it wasn't. Um, but what they put on there was an admission of conflicts of interest for mm -hmm. Peter Doshak. And subsequently, Peter Doshak was actually removed um, from the Lancet COVID-19's Origins Investigative Committee. Um, the Lancet had several branches that were doing different aspects of COVID-19 work, um, but Peter w was leading um, the Origins team. So he was removed from that group. Um, I think it was a, you know, a resignation and infamy. Um, but what was so interesting about this statement is that it wasn't just Peter Doshak who had a conflict of interest. Another individual, Charles Callister, the first name listed on this statement, um, well, we had revealed, like you said, that he had actually been taking money from Google funding his research. Um, so, and just to kind of tie it all together, because there are a lot of moving parts here, um, this statement, the Lancet statement, um, was probably, I would argue, the most influential statement coming from a Western scientific organization that was used as evidence, or at least falsified evidence, sort of a dossier type thing, um, by the mainstream media outlets, by big tech platforms, to criticize and silence the voices of people who wanted to get to the bottom of the lab leak theory or the origins of COVID-19. And frankly, I think, and I, I, I said this from day one, of course the mainstream media is going to take the side of the Chinese Communist Party on the origins of COVID-19, all the money they've taken from their outlets to put advertisements in their papers and just in general where their affinity lies, they have always uncritically taken the line of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think a lot of times they look for these kind of fake appeals to authority type you know, documents, i.e. coming from the prestigious Lancet Medical Journal, right? A statement that should have been in a perfect world written by experts, you know, actually containing true fact-based, evidence-based information inside of it, but instead it was premature judgment, premature dismissal of the lab leak theory, but every major main mainstream media outlet sort of used this document. Um, they predicated their coverage of COVID-19, they used it as an excuse to censor people who supported the COVID-19 lab leak theory. So I think it's really interesting when you see both big tech having ties to a lot of the people who were on, who had signed that statement, um, but also the Chinese Communist Party having ties to people who had signed that statement. And of course, those ties go all the way to the top. The actual, the chairman of the entire Lancet COVID-19 committee is an individual by the name of Jeffrey Sachs. And this is someone 
who routinely writes op-eds that are shared by Chinese state media um, and Chinese Communist Party officials on Twitter, and someone who's even been involved with CEFC China Energy. Mm. So I think that this is kind of a perfect example of how the Chinese Communist Party, either directly or indirectly, dictating what information is getting out there, what the statements are saying. And I think another perfect example of that, you know, going all the way to the top, is the World Health Organization, right? There was just reports, actually, from a recent Vanity Fair article that a staffer at EcoHealth Alliance suggested that it was the Chinese Communist Party who selected Peter Doshak to serve in his role as a COVID-19 investigator. And remember, Peter Doshak was the only American serving on that team. And I think even when you take a step back, you know, it's easy to get probably, you know, bogg mind boggled by all this, this data. But I just think, at least to me, when you see the World Health Organization's COVID-19 investigative team trying to get to the bottom of COVID-19, and you see the one American voice on there, the only person who could speak for all of the Americans who've lost a loved one to COVID-19, all of the Americans who've lost their businesses and lost their jobs from this virus, and the one person who was supposed to represent us, and actually try to get to the bottom of this thing, he was totally compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that's sort of metaphorically you know, apt for what the situation is here in the United States, that when really push comes to shove, when the, you know, the time, time is of the essence and it's a really important, important mission to get to the bottom of this virus, which ostensibly would have helped with finding a cure to it, helping people you know, survive and, and, and make it past COVID-19, the best we can do is put up someone who received money to work with the same, the same lab that is believed to have created the virus in the first place. And I think that is the perfect example of how deep corruption, and ch specifically Chinese Communist Party corruption in this country goes. I think this is the perfect time to discuss uh, some research that you did a while back, I think mid-2021, basically looking at how the NIH was collaborating with another group, uh, the National Natural Science Foundation of China, the NSFC. And this is, you know, this is, a, you know, obviously a, a Chinese Communist Party organization, and it's amazing that such, that such collaborations exist. Tell me about that. The National Natural Science Foundation of China is, is one of these stories that I think really shows you the fusion in terms of military and civilian science in China and why it's so concerning to be funding any form of research over there because nine times out of ten, frankly ten times out of ten, those funds are going to be going to support military-linked research. So I found this story and it was all the way back in 2010 when the first agreement was signed between the National Institutes of Health um, and their Chinese counterpart and they agreed to work on research, kind of a similar arrangement that you saw uh, with the Galveston National Laboratory, but just trying to to open channels of communication, but even more dangerously, open you know channels of sharing pathogens and viruses with these Chinese-based labs, which of course are all controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So five years later, after that initial agreement, um, Anthony Fauci's deputy director um, actually went back to China and broadened the agreement to make sure that this collaboration would continue and be even deeper. Um, and we did a lot of independent reporting and research into what exactly this foundation is. Um, and you can see that a lot of the groups that they're funding um, are you know, branches of the People's Liberation Army. I'm not even saying military-linked entities, I'm saying explicitly military entities. Um, so these sort of agreements, is it ignorance, right? Is there just a fundamental miscalculation of what the Chinese Communist Party is at the National Institutes of Health? 
or is there something more dangerous going on? Are we now getting into the territory of you know compromise and collusion and foreign influence groups that come out of China targeting you know some of the most powerful voices in the United States? Are they going after the National Institutes of Health too? And I think one anecdote that I would say to sort of lend, I think, credence and, and at least corroborate the idea that there is something more nefarious going on there, and it's not ignorance, um, is the case of Francis Collins. So Francis Collins used to be the director of the NIH. He resigned recently, um, but he used to be on the advisory board um, of a conference. I believe it's called the International Genomics Conference. And this was a conference based in China that was put on by BGI Genomics. And people may know BGI Genomics, also their partner, it's China Gene Bank, um, that this has been flagged by those three-letter agencies that should be briefing the NIH as trying to steal Americans' genetic information, harvest their DNA, um, in order to to sort of just just get the information, you know, to, to really embed themselves within the United States, get personal information. They were even using pregnancy tests and COVID-19 tests to get this personal information, this genetic information, which I think is really, really concerning in the hands of these Chinese Communist Party-run labs. Um, but again, this company that was flagged by the FBI um, as you know not being usable by state governments for COVID-19 tests, yet the NIH director is serving essentially on their advisory board, you know, that kind of leaves you scratching your head saying, where is the disconnect there? Um, how is this allowed to, to continue? Um, but I think beyond that, and, and more to the heart of the issue, you know, what does the NIH think of the Chinese Communist Party? Um, I think the evidence there is also in the grant records, in the you know NIH data registry, in terms of where they're sending their money, and even since COVID-19, millions of dollars have continued to pour out of this country, taxpayer funds, to Chinese Communist Party-run labs and to fund research in China when we know there's no transparency going on there. And when crisis hits, when you have another COVID-19 situation, no transparency is going to magically happen overnight. Um, so I think it's really curious that you still see these voices championing for increased research with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and even another individual who worked at the National Institutes of Health, um, he actually, believe it or not, starred in China Global Television uh, Network's documentary about the origins of COVID-19. And to me, the fact that you have a CGTN film crew sitting in the National Institutes of Health interviewing an NIH official on the origins of COVID-19, and they think what he's saying works in their documentary with their, you know, preformed narrative and conclusion that, you know, coronavirus or COVID-19 either came, they probably would say it came from America or at least, you know, the wet market. Um, I think that just kind of shows you how, how deep the rot goes, right? Something is very rotten at the NIH um, in terms of their just okayness with sending taxpayer funds um, to fund Chinese Communist Party, Party research. And I think part of the problem is a personnel problem. I think the Francis Collins example is an, is an instance of that. But I think the problem is also a policy problem, too, um, in terms of those memorandums of understanding that we were talking about, these agreements. Um, but it just doesn't seem like there's anyone at the NIH. You know, there, the, the fact that that contract, the Galveston contract, got through with that confidentiality clause on there. And there was not a single person in that entire agency who raised 
any red flags about that? And maybe there was, but maybe they were quashed. So then you would say, well, who's the person who's, you know, basically trying to put clauses and contracts that are beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party? Um, I think it just really makes you you wonder that it's both, you know, a personnel problem and a policy problem. Well, beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party and obviously against science, against <laughs> actual doing of science by, you know, basically destroying things for the, at the convenience of the CCP, right? Well, Natalie, we could keep talking about this, you know, for many, many more hours. Um, you know, you've done some really remarkable research over the last few years. And I guess, I guess my question is, as we finish up, is how did you possibly get into this? I mean, let me put it this way. There aren't a lot of folks doing this level of basically fine-grained discovery of facts, especially these, at this level of sensitivity? Well, people always ask me, you know, you must have some amazing source, right? You must speak fluent Chinese, you must have something. And I always say, I wish I had, you know, a James Bond style story to, to tell people about how I got involved in this and, and how I do my research. Um, but I've just always been someone who I think I, I've been fortunate the way I grew up to see that so many of the people in America's ruling class, right, these, these elite types, um, and not even just politicians, but big business leaders, um, people who just wield influence in this country, um, really have sold out to the Chinese Communist Party. And I know that's a cliche, but I think our reporting that we've done, you know, allows me to say that. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the selling out of so much of America to the Chinese Communist Party, compounded by the fact that the media class is also complicit in that, means that no one is ever going to be reporting on what's going on with these elites and the deals they're striking and just how they've really been bought off by the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm someone who I think just as a, as a person, I hate seeing people get away with bad things. And I know that probably oversimplifies the issue, but you know, there's such a lack of accountability today, at least in media. Um, and I think a lot of the people that the media choose to turn a blind eye to, um, you know, they need scrutiny too. And that's sort of how I got interested in all this, because I, I saw all these people getting off scot-free um, for selling out to, you know, America's most existential threat and mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party, um, and nothing, you know, w was happening to them. They were just signing their checks, um, you know, getting whatever money they were getting, and it was totally okay. Um, and I think I was also fortunate too. I've, you know, gotten to work with some of the most brilliant minds in the field, um, and I was fortunate too somehow, even though I'm from California. But I was fortunate that the media I grew up reading um, was, you know, truth-based, fact-based, evidence-based, even the Epic Times. And I think given my age, you know, I've always had computers in the classroom from when I was really young. So I'm fortunate that I'm really good at doing online research. Um, I call it opposition research. Um, so I've sort of been able, I think, to footnote a lot of the statements that some of the older, you know, China commentators or just older political commentators make um, because they've seen the world, they have their wisdom. Um, but I think they kind of sell themselves short when they just say, you know, oh, so-and-so is compromised by the Chinese Communist Party or so-and-so has sold out um, because that oversimplifies the issue. You know, I can read you chapter and verse and give you receipt after receipt documenting how this compromise actually happens. And I think there's such an appetite for that because so much of what media has fallen to is just, you know, kind of opinion commentary um, and just kind of noise in the wind. Um, so I think there are a lot of, you know, 
the timing was right and, and you know, I was, I was lucky. But um, I think there's just an appetite for real journalism um, and real journalism into the people that have kind of been deemed the, you know, untouchable cast, um, although I guess paradoxically the, the, the inverse of that, um, over here. So, you know, someone needs to hold them accountable. So if it's us, I guess it's us. <laughs> well, Natalie Winters, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for joining Natalie Winters and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. If you haven't subscribed already, you can now try a 14-day free trial and get access to all of our deep dive interviews, documentaries, and exclusive content on Epoch TV, from American Thought Leaders to The Larry Elder Show. Just go to ept.ms slash free trial yan.